It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now here's Eric Lutie. Uh, this is the eighth installment in a series that I've been doing, uh, which is called Heroic Tales. And uh, each of these is going to sort of unpack a character in the Old Testament, but not specifically so that we can just have historical data on a character from the Old Testament, but so that we can see the attributes of behavior, of living that we are commissioned to. And so this one is actually gonna be with Ezekiel, uh, the prophet, uh, who's a fascinating character to study and one that you sort of desire not to need to model and, and to follow. He has quite the interesting challenge uh, before him and what God is commissioning him to. But it's profoundly uh, parallel uh, to us as, as Christians and as believers. So in all the other ones, what I've done is I've started with the character, unpacked their life, and then uh, sort of showed how that links to us. In this one, I'm gonna do it a little different uh, because the book of Ezekiel is, is a very odd and unusual book. And so I'm going to introduce you to a concept which uh, for those of you that have been around Ellerslie for a while, you're familiar with, and that's the chariot of the cherubim, uh, which I'm gonna go through and I'm gonna sort of enunciate that and then we're going to unpack it. Uh, is everything fine back there, Nick? Okay. Uh, so I'm calling this instance. Uh, the idea of instance is, uh, I'd say, one of the lost behavioral arts of Christianity. We have this idea of obedience based on our timing and our readiness in, as opposed to God's timing and his command. And so the idea of instant obedience, like when you're being trained as a child, you are developing a, an obedience of sorts, but... You know, have you ever had uh, where your parents will go, I am asking you to do this now, and then the child will, you know, wiggle around a little and act like he doesn't hear, and then I'm going to count to three. One, two, this is how my mom did it, and so I was playing Atari, and, you know, she's like, Eric, turn that off. We have dinner on the table. I'm like, yeah, and I'd keep playing. It's like, Eric, I told you to turn that off. Do you need me to unplug the Atari? No, no, don't unplug the Atari. Eric, I need you to come now. I'm coming. And meanwhile, I'm still playing. And then, Eric, I'm going to count to three. One, two. Hey, I'm, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. So is that obedience is my question. I, see, I did what my mom asked, but I did it my way. And that's not instant obedience that is actually a form of disobedience because I am exerting my will against the one who is asking me to obey. And so many of us are trapped in a certain form of that in our Christianity where we know what God wants, but we hesitate and we, we continue to play the Atari. Meanwhile, we know the whole while that God is asking us to do something and we're waiting for some extreme thing to happen before we finally say, okay, I, I'll do it. It's just a bad way to live, and there's a different model of life that is actually very significant as far as the formation of the Christian, and it's the instant version. And so we're going to see in this pattern, I'm going to call it the chariot of the cherubim, that's the term that scripture actually gives to it. First Chronicles 28:18 is describing the holy of holies. 
And for the altar of incense, refined gold by weight and gold for the pattern of the chariot of the cherubim that spread out their wings and covered the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So we know in the description, uh, the earthly description of the, the temple and the tabernacle, is that there seems to be two cherubim that stretch out their wings over the Ark of Covenant. And so, you know, you could call that like the shadow of the Almighty. You could, uh, it's the Holy of Holies. It's the Ark of Covenant. It's the Propitiatorium. It's, there's all sorts of different names, the Oracle of God. But what we have is we have a temple in the heavenly realms that is being mimicked down here on earth. So this is a shadow temple that Moses is receiving a vision for, and David is receiving a vision for, and they're building something. They're building something according to a vision, according to a pattern as given to them. And in this pattern, we see what would be called a chariot of the cherubim. Now, for most of us, we're going to think a chariot is a moving uh, vehicle. It has wheels, and it goes somewhere. But when you think of a temple, you're not thinking of a moving vehicle. You're thinking of a stationary one. So as a result, it's a weird thing to call this holy of holies, this ark of covenants and cherubim, a chariot. I, mean, I don't know how many of you would think of calling something like that a chariot. And yet, Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, is going to give us an up-close and personal understanding of this chariot of the cherubim. And you start to recognize, wait a minute, this actually is a chariot. Most of us don't think of the holy of holies or the very presence of God as going mobile, as being something that moves about, but we're going to see in the book of Ezekiel that it is. Remember this field trip to heaven that I've, I've talked with you guys about, uh, that, you know, it's a bonus uh, factor to the, uh, the school here, is that if I had a flying bus, we could all hop into it and take a, a, a very quick trip up to heaven, and imagine what that would be like, just to sort of see the actual temple of God. And so one of the things I've oftentimes said is, when you, if you were to, to visit the temple of God, what would it be like? And how would the angelic host relate to the presence of God? How would the cherubim and the seraphim relate? Because this is a pattern that is being given to us, because when Paul in the New Testament says, do you not know that you are the temple of the living God? That we are to follow this pattern this pattern of reverence, this pattern of honor, this pattern of purity, of cleanliness, of a constant fire before the altar. This is actually the way that we are supposed to live. So Paul says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In other words, your body and your spirit are purchased. They belong to God, not you, which is an interesting thought. And this is, of course, the basis of instant obedience is to recognize that you are not your own. You are a bond slave. In fact, in the book of Revelation, it's going to say, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Then it's going to say, he who has an ear. It's going to say it like seven, eight times, okay? It is over and over and over again that it's going to say this. What does that mean? We all have ears. We all have physical ears, but we don't all have consecrated ears. Ears that are pierced. Remember the bond slave in the Old Testament? That he is set free, but then out of love, he goes back to his master and he goes up against the doorpost and his ear is pierced with an awl. What does that mean? That means he has an ear for his master. So what his master says, he already has agreed to say yes to it. It's what we could call the predecided yes. 
So there is no negotiating. When the master speaks, the answer has already been given. The answer is already yes. Now it's just the action. Now it's the instant that is called upon. And so for all of us, we need to recognize that we are bondservants. In fact, John in the book of Revelation introduces himself as John the bondservant of Jesus Christ. He is a bondservant, which means his ear is pierced. Is your ear pierced? Because the book of Revelation is written to those who have a pierced ear, to those who have an ear for their master, to those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These are those that have already given up their life and said, I belong to Jesus. What he says, I will do. An ear is a symbol of hearing. And so if you've already pierced your ear, that means whatever is going to be said by my master, my answer is yes. So do you know this? The Jewish take on holiness uh, with an Eric twist. So you may have heard me say this somewhere along the line. I'm not exactly positive if I've shared this in this particular semester for those of you that are students. But uh, there's a guy named Joseph Telushkin. He's a rabbi that is not a Christian, but he was giving an understanding of holiness uh, from the Jewish perspective. And to a Jew, holiness is a huge deal. It is like the prime attribute of the life. And so... As a result, when he was attempting to describe this, he was saying it, it means set apart, it's other than, it's reserved for God's use. So he said out of all of the universe, the solar system that we're in is holy. It is reserved for God's use. And in this solar system, in this particular place, this, this, this solar system that we're in, this is the chosen place that God is, out of all the billions of solar systems that God has chosen to reveal his glory. But out of this solar system, Earth, is his chosen planet. So it is the holy planet out of all the other planets. All the other planets can be grand, can be great, can reveal God's glory, but this one is especially holy. So out of all the planets, Earth is the most holy. And because it's the place that God has chosen in which to reveal his glory. But out of all of Earth, there is a certain land mass that is more holy than any others. It's called the Holy Lands. It's actually what we call it, but it's the, the territory of Israel. And there's defined territory in the Old Testament from uh, the Jordan River, Euphrates, Mediterranean Sea. There's this territory. We know what that is, right? That's the land of Canaan, the land of promise. But out of all that land of promise, there's a certain sector of land which is more holy than any other part of even the Holy Land, which is more holy than all the rest of Holy Earth, which is more holy than all the rest of the solar system, right? And that is the holy city of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, out of all the Holy Land, is more holy than any other city and it, because it is God's chosen place through which he will reveal his glory. And then out of all the, uh, the holy city of Jerusalem, you know that there is one territory in Jerusalem that is more holy than any other, and that is the Temple Mount, where the temple of God will be built. And did you know that of all the Temple Mount, there's one quadrant, it's 20 cubits by 20 cubits square, that is more holy than the rest of the Temple Mount, which is more holy than the rest of the Holy City, which is more holy than the rest of the Holy Land, which is more holy than the rest of the Holy Earth, which is more holy than all the rest of the Holy Planets, which is more holy than all the, uh, the rest of the solar systems. This is the Holy of Holies. That's actually what it's called. It's the Holy of Holies in the Temple of God. So amongst the Jews, they believe that... Uh, the Jewish people are more holy than all the others. It's sort of hard to argue that. They're God's chosen people, so they would be called the holy people, right? And so out of all the people of this earth, God chose this group of people through which to reveal his glory. It's hard to argue because Jesus was born of this uh, people. So yeah, you know, you have to give it a, a, some compliments there. 
And yet out of all the holy people, did you know that even the way they would look at it, that of all the 12 tribes, there's one tribe that is more holy. And that's the Levites, because they're commissioned to do the holy work of God in the temple. But out of all the Levites, there are some that are actually more holy than the rest of the Levites, and that's the priests. And out of all the priests, there is one priest that is more holy than all the other priests, and that's the high priest. So then out of all the languages of earth, uh, the Hebrews believe that the Hebrew language is, of course, the most holy language of all languages, because God chose to reveal his glory through it. Uh, and so, of course, in the Old Testament, you see that. In the New Testament, could you imagine the Greeks going, hey, you know, wait a minute, Koine Greek might be more holy than the Hebrew. However, we're not going to go there. Uh, to, this is to the Hebrew mind, remember? And so Joseph, Rabbi Joseph Telushkin would say uh, that out of all the languages, Hebrew is the most holy. And that out of all the Hebrew, the Torah, the first five books are the most holy of all. And then of all the first five books, there is one segment of scripture that is more holy than all the others. And it was written by the very finger of God. And that is the Ten Commandments. And out of all the Ten Commandments, the most holy of word, out of all the holy Ten Commandments, out of all the holy Torah, out of all the holy scriptures, out of all the holy language, is the ineffable, unspeakable name of Jehovah God. That is the highest for the most holy word in all of the holy language. To, all the, to the Jews, every day of the year is holy, but they have certain days of the year that are more holy, and they're called holy days. We call them holidays. And so then there's certain holy days that are more holy than any other. For instance, a Sabbath is, you know, there's 52 of them in a year, at least in our Gregorian calendar. I don't know if they have 52 in the Jewish calendar or not, but it's around that, right? So you have a Sabbath every week, and that's more holy than all the other six days of the week, is that seventh day, which they would have declared to be on what would be our Saturday. And out of all of the holy days, uh, there are some days that are more holy than others, and those are the feasts. And the feasts are the holiest of all the days, but there is one feast out of all the feasts that is more holy than all the other feasts, and that's the Feast of Tabernacles and the Day of Atonement is the chief day of all days to the Jews. So out of all the holy days, the Day of Atonement is the most holy of all holy days. So just think about this. To the Jew, there is one day that is more holy than any other. That's the Day of Atonement. There's one man that is more holy than any other, and that's the high priest. And there's more one word that is more holy than any other word, and that's the name of Jehovah. And he comes into the most holy place on all uh, the earth out of all the universe on that day, on the day of atonement, offering blood, and he speaks the ineffable, unspeakable name, the most holy name. And to the Jews, this is how Joseph Telushkin would say it, if that high priest had even a spot of sin on him, it wouldn't be just him that would be destroyed. The entire earth, the entire universe would be destroyed. So that's how serious the Jews take holiness. It is a big, big deal. And so when... when Paul is going to declare that we are the temple of the living God. Could you imagine what it must sound like to the Jews when we as the Gentiles are burping, our scratching, burping and scratching our way through our Christianity, you know, living in such selfishness and flesh? And we're saying, yeah, we're the temple of the Most High God. We're the Holy of Holies. Can you imagine why a Jew would stumble over that and say, I don't think so. I don't think my God would have anything to do with you. First of all, we're Gentile dogs, so it's, it's, it's a difficult one to convince. And yet, the entirety of the gospel hinges upon this reality of what Jesus Christ has done. He has made very unclean things clean to be dwelling places of the Most High God. But we must recognize that the Jews still have something. They have a recognition of the holiness 
We don't oftentimes as Gentiles. We don't see it. But if we could, we would recognize the severity, the significance, the gravity of what it means to be a carrier of the glory of God. So this is serious business, the temp- this temple of the living God stuff. So we're going to introduce the cherubim who know it is serious business. First, what are they? So we're calling this the chariot of the cherubim, this holy of holies. First of all, what's a cherubim? So with help from Ezekiel chapter 1, we're going to come to these conclusions. They are living creatures. They look like men, but they have four faces. The face of an eagle, lion, an ox, and a man. So from what I can gather, it's a face of a man on the front, a face of an eagle on the back, a face of a lion on the right, and a face of an ox on the left. That's at least, I'm I'm putting this together, right? And that's an odd uh, way to be built. And yet, did you know the cherubim are before the creation of God? So as a result, uh, we see uh, the creation of this earth as far as the formation of the animals. And so you see that an eagle would be fashioned after the face of a cherub. And the ox would be fashioned after the face of a cherub. And the lion would be fashioned after the face of a cherub. Isn't that an odd statement? And we know that a man's face is fashioned after the image of God. So what an interesting creature this is. They have calf's feet, but man's hands with four wings. They glow white and have the appearance of burning coals of fire. The movement of their wings sounds like mighty rushing waters. They move from here to there like a flash of lightning. So what is their job? We don't know a lot about the cherubim, but we do know something. And he rode upon a cherub and did fly, and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. You know what that's talking about? That's talking about God flying on a cherub. So what do we know about cherub? Well, not that much, but we do know something. For one, they are carriers of God's glory. They seem to bear up the glory of God and carry it. Isn't that just an odd statement? He was seen on the wings of a cherub. It's like, what's God doing riding on a cherub? And over it, the cherubim of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. Again, this is speaking of the Holy of Holies. And the writer of Hebrews, right when we get to this point where he's going through exhaustively this breakdown of this symbol of the temple of God, he gets to what we're all waiting for, the cherubim of glory. All right, he's going to tell us about it. And you know what he says? He says, of which we cannot now speak particularly. The writer of Hebrews literally gets right to that point and then steers away from it. In other words, this is a topic that though it is intriguing, God knows that it is unnecessary for us to have full understanding of it. There is enough, there, he's obviously bringing it up, so there's, it's important at a certain level, but it's also a distraction. And God says, stay focused. I'm not going to tell you about the cherubim now. We're like, oh God, I want to know about the cherubim. The chariot of the cherubim, what is it? Well, it seems to be a mobile, flying, holy of holies. It has a platform that looks like terrible crystal. I don't know what you think terrible crystal looks like, but like clear, shiny crystal. It's like a frozen river. You know, like uh, when the throne of God is in its place, you know what comes out from underneath it? A river, a river of life flows out of it. And yet when when it goes mobile, it seems to freeze. Like That's just my... I'm just hazarding guesses because it's like a river, but that's frozen or that's solid. There is a sapphire throne sitting upon the platform and on that throne sits God in all his glory. The chariot is carried by four cherubim. 
And next to each of the four cherubim are four wheels that appeared to be wheels within wheels. Does that help? Anytime you read Ezekiel, you're like, okay. Now get this. The wheels are, all, are covered all over with eyes. Does that help you envision uh, what it's like? The wheels are covered all over in eyes. It's like, okay. And they went. Now listen to what it says about the cherubim. And they went, everyone straight forward, whither the spirit was to go, they went, and they turned not when they went. So what you're seeing me lay out a pattern for is what we're going to call cherubic obedience. So when I talk about instant obedience, you need to recognize that there's a pattern for this. Now you could look at Jesus, he was instantly obedient, whatever his father asked, he did, whatever his father was speaking, he would speak. If his father said, go to the cross, he said, not my will, but thine uh, I will obey, O oh Father. In other words, what we see is an incredible pattern, but this is actually a pattern throughout history of the proper response to God. God is, and we are not. He is God, we are not. What he says goes. What he says is correct. What he says is right. If he commands us to do something, what is the proper response? So wherever the Spirit was to go, they went, and they turned not when they went. Does that sound like your Christianity? Whithersoever the spirit was to go, they went. Thither was their spirit to go. When they went, they went upon their four sides. They turned not as they went, but to the place whither the head looked, they followed it. They turned not as they went. So wherever the head looks, that's where they go. They follow it. Isn't that an incredible statement? Well, who's the head of the church? Jesus Christ. So this is such an amazing pattern. What are they doing? They're carrying the Holy of Holies. Now, can't you just hear Paul? sort of jump into the conversation and go, don't you guys know that you are that holy of holies now and that you are carrying it just as the cherubim once did? You see, God used to be carried by cherubim and his glory was carried by cherubim. Now, Paul's saying, shocker, he's carried by us. Whoa, 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 whoa. You see, the holy of holies has always been mobile. It is still mobile used to be carried by cherubim. We were unfit to carry it. But God has made us fit to carry it. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. So just like wherever the head looks, they went. They followed. Well, how about wherever the Lamb goes? We follow. And that's what the Revelation is saying. These are those that go wherever the Lamb went. They, wherever the lamb would go, well, well, just look at where the lamb, the paschal lamb, capital P, paschal, for sacrificial lamb in the, Old, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, his name is Jesus Christ, where he went. He went to Calvary. And these are those that follow the lamb whithersoever he goes. So you have to admit that it's a huge downgrade to go from cherubim to us. But God has traded in cherubim for <clears throat> us. Isn't that an amazing thought? Cherubim, you know that Lucifer was a cherub or is a cherub, which means he has four faces. He was a cherub that covered the presence of God. So he was literally in that most intimate quarter and he rebelled. These, these characters, these cherubim are the wisest, the strongest, and the most beautiful of God's creation. And we are just so smallish next to them. So uh, lacking in intelligence next to them, so lacking in power next to them, and yet God has chosen us. For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk 
in them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. How are we supposed to carry this sapphire throne? When they went, this is what it says to the cherubim. So let's take a few cues from this. When they went, they went toward any of their four directions. They did not turn aside when they went, but followed in the direction the head was facing. They did not turn aside when they went. Ezekiel. So now we're going to look at Ezekiel. We'll get this out of the realm of cherubim into the realm of men. Ezekiel, we're going to call him the man of instant action. So I just took out a, a small sampling because the whole book of Ezekiel could be a study on this because God over and over and over again is going to ask Ezekiel to do difficult things. And what's interesting is you don't hear Ezekiel argue. There is, you know, I, can, I can give one time when Ezekiel made an appeal. But Ezekiel just does it every single time. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. Then the Spirit entered into me when he spoke to me and set me on my feet and I heard who spoke to me. So this, the way this is written is very fascinating to me because what you're going to see is Ezekiel respond in a way that is different than our response. Our response is very headstrong. Our response is to weigh and to calculate. God gives us a command and we have a tendency to receive it, to hear it, and then to sort of work through it. It's like, well, if I did that, then this would happen. Ah, how, what should I do? As if we're creating a you know, positives and negatives uh, column to say, what would be the positives? Well, what would be the negatives? Should I do this? You see, that's just not the way we in interact with God. When God asks us to do something, our answer should be yes. And that's how Ezekiel is going to be responding. But look at this first one. Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. Then the spirit entered me and he spoke to me and set me on my feet. I've just always been fascinated by that statement because what you're going to see is at the very beginning of Ezekiel, there's an enunciation of how Ezekiel is even responding. And it seems to be because the Spirit of God is enabling him to do this, which is ironically the same thing that enables us. Uh, Ezekiel 2, open your mouth and eat what I give you. Now, I have to admit that when you read Ezekiel, which I would highly encourage you to do, it's an extremely fascinating book, especially with the key I'm giving you. I'm giving you the key to unlock the mystery in the very beginning, which is the chariot of the cherubim. It's very hard to understand. You have to actually read through the whole book before you get to the fact that these living creatures are cherubim. And so as a result, you don't start putting it all together until you've actually read this huge book. When it's, it's hard for us to read. As non-Jews, to read this, we don't see the symbology in it. We don't recognize the Holy of Holies. We don't see things the same way, way someone would if that was their culture. And so for us, it helps to have a key. And the key being, uh, that's cherubim. Yeah, that's actually the mobile Holy of Holies that is taking place here. But what we have is we have God who's actually upset. If I could describe it anyway, it's like he's actually mad. Not at Ezekiel. He's mad at this nation. He's mad at this, this people that have gone into captivity. This is during the Babylonian captivity. And he is upset with how the temple of God is being treated, how all of the facets of his kingdom have been handled. And so he comes to Ezekiel to, to raise up someone who would speak truth to this people. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. There's no pleasantries. God doesn't say, hi, Ezekiel, boy, you know, my name is Jehovah, 
And you're Ezekiel, I know, I created you, and just want you to know I love you. By the way, I have a task for you. There's no pleasantries in this. No howdies, no handshakes, no hugs. Just command. God shows up and says, open your mouth and eat what I give you. It's like, wow. Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Now, don't you think that you're going to pause before you eat a book? Okay, in other words, eat this. I'm giving you something, eat it. What's our response? Is that humanly possible? What would happen to my digestive system if I actually did take, eat that? Can I even swallow it? I mean, this is, a, this is a scroll that is being set in front of him. Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. Eat it. He said to me, son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go. Speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth. Does that sound like us? So I opened my mouth. No, it's so I pondered this. I pondered how ridiculous the request was. I pondered how I've never heard of anyone in history ever being asked to eat a scroll. I was pondering, could this possibly be God who would ask me to eat this? this animal skin scroll with ink on it. You've got to be kidding. That's our response. But look at his. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat that scroll. What did he do? He opened his mouth. How did he eat it? Well, he seemed to have gotten some help from God there. He caused me to eat the scroll. My mental picture of that is like, yes, yes, you're going to eat it. You're going to eat it. Now swallow. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. Ezekiel 3, then the hand of the Lord was upon me there, and he said to me, arise, go into the plain, and there I shall talk with you. So, what happens to us? So I pondered that. I weighed out what this would mean. You know that what God has even said to Ezekiel before this? Is they're not going to listen to you. It's going to be like going among scorpions. It's going to be extremely difficult. Who knows what they're going to do to you, but you're going to speak to them. By the way, arise, go into the plain, and there I shall talk with you. So I arose and went out into the plain. Okay, what, what is this, guys? We see it in the cherubim, and we see it in Ezekiel. I'm going to call it cherubic obedience. It's instant obedience. It is the sort of obedience that says when the head turns, we turn. When the head speaks, we listen. We obey. We do exactly what we're asked to do. There's no dickering, there's no negotiating. So for us, this is not normal behavior. This is supernatural behavior. This is something of the kingdom of heaven that needs to come in and change us. We're going to finish with this, the consecrated priests in Exodus 29. So in Exodus 29, we have an incredible picture, which is a picture of the cross. It's one of the best ways of of looking at it. And it's a picture of the work of the sacrifice of Christ in purchasing his saints and purchasing their bodies. So what you have is the high priest of Israel is going to kill a bull and he's going to take from the blood of it and he's going to have all the priests stand before him. And he is going to smear blood, the blood of this sacrificial bull on their right ear, on their right thumb, and in their right big toe. Yep, this is actually in the Bible. And you can read it in Exodus 29. And so you could say, well, that's weird. Well, uh, you see, to the Jew, the body is very significant. It all means something. Every part of the body is significant. The right side of the body would be the side of authority and strength. 
So the fact that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father is a symbol of saying he is receiving the authority of God. He is dependent because the left side is a sign of dependence. And so the bride will lean on the strong right arm of her groom. And so what you see is Jesus in weakness has given himself and now he is raised up to receive the inheritance of the strength of God. So he is seated in the right hand position. And so we, like the bride, are going to lean on his right arm. He has been entrusted with all power and all authority. We lean, like a bride, on his right arm. Our right needs to be laid down. So it's critical for us that we let go of the controls of our lives. So this is a symbol. The right side is a symbol of control, of power, of authority. And what does God say? I need the right. I need your right. So what is the ear symbolic of? Hearing and obedience. He says, I, I, I need that ear. So what does the high priest do? Takes of that blood, and we submit the ear, and we say, I, I desire to do the work of your temple. So he says, okay, let me have the ear then. Smears the ear with blood, which means our answer is yes. Whatever you ask of me, Lord, my answer is yes. The thumb, the right thumb, well, can you think of anything on the body more symbolic of control? than that. First, it's on the right side of the body, which is a side of control and power and authority. And God says, could I uh, stick my blood on that right thumb? My right thumb? I don't want you to touch my right thumb. Why? Because that's our control. That's our position in our life. And he says, I, I want that right thumb. And so we submit our right thumb and he smears it with blood, which means we are now under the control of God. And then the right big toe. I know, a little strange. In other words, where we go in this life, where we lead in this life, he says, I want to control that. Would you submit your right big toe to me so that where you go, it will be my leading. Where the head turns, you will follow. Where I look, you will look. What I speak, you will heed. What I command of you, you will say yes. This is a model for living which most of us have not seen in modern Christianity. And yet it is that of historic Christianity, and obviously you see it in the life of Ezekiel, but look at all the lives of the apostles, starting with the life of Jesus Christ himself, who though he was God, humbled himself to become obedient as a servant. And whatever his father did, said, he did and said. So what you see is a modeling that comes from Jesus Christ himself, and then we become the body of Christ. The body of Christ is a harnessed body. It is a body that is controlled by a head. Well, who is the head of our body? Jesus, the word of God. So the word of God is literally that which we heed. And where it looks, we look. What it speaks, we speak. But also in the most intimate dimensions of our life, we are controlled by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will never argue with the word of God, but will bring from the word of God to us to actually create this picture of God's glory in and through our lives. We are a mobile holy of holies. Isn't that an incredible thought? That God has chosen to make this his dwelling place and he's put wheels on it. I don't know what our wheels look like if they have eyes all over them. And I, I'm glad you guys aren't able to ask me. We're not open this up for a Q&A time. If you were to say, what are those eyes on those wheels? There's various things I may be able to give a good educated guess on and there's others that... They're not as good a guesses, okay? There's all sorts of things in Ezekiel that I don't 
fully understand, even though I want to. And I bet that there's a great answer for all these things. Well, I know there's a great answer for it. But at times, our job is to not necessarily just move when we have it all figured out, but to move when we know enough. And right now, we need to know that we were bought with a price. We are not our own. That we belong to Jesus Christ, and what he desires to do in us, he can do. So let's freshly consecrate ourselves as we head into a time of worship. Let's remember that he possesses us. And I want you to consider your right, your right ear, your right thumb, and your right great toe. And to ask yourself the question, are they smeared with blood? Because if they're not, well, what better time than right now to submit them? Father, I just ask that you would do this work, that you would reveal your kingdom pattern, and that as we worship you, Lord Jesus, we would see you more clearly. We would respond to you more accurately. We love you. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.